All right, y'all. Let's open up our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7. We have been going through a sermon series entitled No Longer Slaves. The book of Deuteronomy was written to remind the Israelites that they no longer lived in slavery. Egypt no longer had a hold of them. And that God was creating a community that was going to be so much better and greater than they could even imagine. Today, we're going to talk about one of the biggest temptations that fall on a community that had no, they, they had no identity. And the temptation is that we might take on the identity of the cultures around us and not the identity that God wants for us. And with those thoughts, I want to pray. We'll take a look at this passage this morning. Father God, I'm just very grateful to be here, to sing these praises to you, to hear your word, to commune with each other as we honor and bless your great name. Father, as we open your word, we pray that you'll open our hearts, that you'll open our minds, that we might be transformed and conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. A farmer had two mules whom he yoked together to pull his plow. One mule told the other that he was tired of working every day and devised a plan where he would pretend to be sick to get out of work. Sure enough, it worked. The next day, the farmer only used one mule. And after working all day with little production, the second mule came back to the barn. And the first mule asked him, well, did the farmer say anything about me? And the second mule confirmed, yeah, he hopes you feel better tomorrow. First mule felt pretty good about this trick and said, I'm going to try to get one more day out of this. Pretended to be sick the second day. The next day, after plowing with little production, the second mule came back to the barn. And the first mule asked, well, did the farmer say anything about me today? And the second mule replied, not to me, but he had a lot to say to the butcher. I don't know if you know this, but a healthy mule can pull a wagon load that weighs as much as it does. A 400-pound mule can pull a 400-pound uh, cart. You'd think that if you yoked two mules together, you'd pull twice as much, but that's not truth. Yoked together... Two mules can pull even more than both of their combined weights. That's because there's more strength when mules are yoked together. Now, an unequal yoke can drastically change these numbers. If a, you yoke a mule to a 1,200-pound oxen, the mule wouldn't go very far probably get pretty stubborn and wouldn't move. And an oxen is trained well, listens to commands, would move right along without that mule. 
maybe going in circles, or even dragging that mule to death. Why would anyone do such a thing to animals? Why would a farmer risk the health and productivity of his farm? It's generally a good rule of thumb to be efficient, productive, and safe when managing a farm. And the question that comes up is why would the Israelites be so stubborn about their own lives when it comes to being yoked relationally? And it's with that thought that we come to Deuteronomy chapter 7. As he says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess... And when the Lord your God drives out before you many nations, and he lists them here, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you've defeated them, he says you must destroy them completely, totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for because they will turn your sons away from following me, God says, to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you're to do to them. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. Cut down their Asherah poles. And burn their idols in the fire. The key phrase in today's passage, and specifically these first five verses, is to totally destroy. We have to realize that the Canaanites did not always follow idols. At one point in history, they believed in Yahweh. And they had replaced Yahweh with idols and a different way of living, a set of rules for living. Instead of worshiping the Creator God, they worship Baal. Instead of living by the standards of the Lord Almighty, everyone just did as they seemed fit. And the land of Canaan was full of injustice, it was full of immorality, it was full of hatred, and it was full of greed. And based on the Old Testament, we are given every indication that God waited as long as he could. But when he could wait no longer, when God could not allow them to continue in their ways no longer, he sent the Israelites to go in and totally destroy. The idea of total destruction meant that God did not want their culture to continue to exist. Instead of injustice, God wanted to create communities of mercy and grace. 
instead of hatred and greed. God wanted to create communities where people served each other. Instead of self-indulgence, God wanted to create a community that would honor each other and honor God. And so he commanded the Israelites to go in and destroy everything and to keep their kids from intermarrying the kids of the Canaanites and the Hittites and whatnot. He did not want their children to be seduced by the culture of that day. And here's the sad story that we find in Judges chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, which tells us exactly what happened after the people of Israel settled in the land. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And what did they do? They took their daughters in marriage, they gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. The Israelites would not completely destroy and they would give their children away to the people of Canaan. And guess what? The people of Canaan turned their hearts away from Yahweh. Even Solomon. You guys remember the story of Solomon? Given the most wisdom that any human being would ever have. Even Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 11, 4. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. He married the women of Moabite, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, Hittites. They were from nations which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they'll surely turn your hearts away from their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines, and the saddest story in the Bible. His wives led him astray. And as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his David his father had been. We're talking about the wisest man who ever lived. Even he was turned because of an unequal yoke. Let's read on in Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting in verse 6 this time. God says to the Israelites, For, because you are my people. God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possessions. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were actually the fewest among peoples. 
But it was because of the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He says in verse 6, you were a people holy to the Lord. That word holy is a key word. Israel was supposed to be different than Canaan. Holy means set apart. It means to be different. It reminds me of the words in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 when Paul says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Listen to this. For what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can there be between light and and darkness what harmony is there between Christ and Belial or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols for we are a temple of the living God you and I are holy we are a temple of the holy God And as the God said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's a great question that he asks. What agreement is there? What fellowship is there? What is there that is in common? I mean, what fellowship can light have with darkness? The answer is none, right? If I walk into a dark room and I turn on a flashlight, the darkness flees. There is no fellowship between light and darkness. The answer is none. And Israel was supposed to be different. They were supposed to be set apart. They were supposed to be the light of God in the darkness of Canaan. And yet somehow they gave in to the darkness and the light, it flickered out. It happens because they embraced the darkness. They integrated into the culture instead of setting themselves apart. Timothy Keller, former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, gave a really good a really good way to describe what it means to be holy. He does it with the word ambassador. Ambassadors leave country A to live in country B. They speak the language of country B, right? Many of uh, good ambassadors not only speak the language of country B, but they, they do it without an accent. They dwell, they interact with the culture of country B. They raise their children in country B. But at the end of the day, when all is said and done, they represent and hold their loyalties to country A. They are ambassadors. I can love the United States of America. I can pray for its prosperity. I can love and serve my neighbors regardless of their country of origin. 
I can buy and sell to bless this great economy. But at the end of the day, I represent a different kingdom and a different king. At the end of the day, I don't answer to Joe Biden. I don't answer to Glenn Jacobs. And I don't live by the standards of this world. You see, my standards lie and my allegiance lie in country A, in Yahweh and God alone. We are ambassadors. We are holy and we are set apart. And that's kind of how the passage ends with these last two verses, 9 and 10. He says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is faithful, keeping his covenant of love from thousands of generations of those who love and keep his commandments. But those, him, those who hate him will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate them. At the end of the day, we're talking about a yoke. At the end of the day, we're talking about being yoked with fellow ambassadors. Those who understand, who have embraced the truth of those two verses. Let's say that Jeff Offshack and I are yoked together. He lives his life for the kingdom of God. He serves the poor. He cares for the powerless. He is truthful. He is kind to every person regardless of their economic or social status. We are going to be partners, friends, and ambassadors together. But the problem is I'm not living that way. I'm living my life for the kingdom of Jeremy. I serve those who bring me status and power. I spend my time accumulating toys and objects of my desire. I'm honest enough to boost my agenda and only kind to those who can bring me what I desire. Do you want those two people being yoked together as your ministers of Cornerstone Christian Church. No. Someone's going to get hurt, and the church is not going to be efficient, productive, or powerful. And yet, why do we do it? Why do we continue to partner with those who are not for the kingdom of God? Who are you going to partner with relationally in our kingdom journey? I will speak on this subject because it's usually what's applied when we look at this passage in Corinthians that says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. He's also talking about marriage. If you're single today and you're settling for an unbeliever, you're going to find yourself in an uphill battle. I heard a preacher once say, 
I wish people would stop asking me if they should date a non-Christian. They just need to ask someone who married one. And you may see, say, I know someone who dated an atheist. They got married, and they have a happy marriage. And partner A is still a Christian. Partner B is still an atheist. And to that I would say, since 1950, over 5,000 people have gone over Niagara Falls. The first one to survive, her name was Annie Edison Taylor. She got in a barrel closed the barrel, and went over Niagara Falls and lived to tell about it. And since 1901, 15 others have gone over Niagara Falls and lived. 4,985. I won't go over Niagara Falls, would you? Why are we trying to be the 16 that survive? Why are we like that stubborn mule? <laughs> Friends, this applies not only in marriage, but it applies also to our personal lives. We are yoked together. That we need to all be for the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. And Jesus said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves to take up their cross and follow me. This is kind of an easy concept for us to understand today because we can read about Jesus taking his cross and dying and then defeating the power of death when he resurrected, amen? But think about the disciples. Jesus hadn't died yet. And at this point in the journey, none of the disciples could picture the horrendous scene where Jesus hung on a cross. But Jesus knew. He knew it would take death to bring life. And he knew that we needed to die to ourselves to bring life. And therefore, you and I, we need to destroy those idols. We need to smash those sacred stones. We need to break down those altars. God has chosen you to be a kingdom worker and as we all carry our weight as kingdom workers, we're going to do mighty things in this kingdom of God. As we move into our time of communion, I want to remind you that you are no longer slaves to sin. God has freed you from that. Now let's take up this kingdom cause together. Reflect. We have three communion stations set up, one in each of these three corners. And as the worship team sings this next song, I invite you to get up and go to one of these communion stations, take the cups back to your seat, and reflect as we sing 
And then I believe Bill's going to come this morning and share with us a fresh word. And as he does, we will take communion together. Will you bow your heads as we pray? Father God, we uh, come this morning with grateful hearts for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for these brothers and sisters who've understood what it means to be holy and set apart, who have set their minds on kingdom ways. And my prayer, dear Lord, is that we can all just gather together with that. And as we are yoked together, we know that we will do a powerful work in this city. And we know that it's going to be done by your Holy Spirit and that you will receive the glory and honor and people will know who you are through it. Help us to be the community that you desired for Israel. And Father, we are thankful for this time that we can honor and worship you in communion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.